16. And if anyone needs a Bible, if you just raise your hand, we'll bring one to you so you can follow along with us in, in our study. Revelation chapter 16. Now, the number of events that are recorded for us in the book of Revelation during the first half of the tribulation far outnumber the events that are recorded during the second half of the tribulation. In the first half that we saw from chapter 6 all the way up through chapter 15 that we studied last week, we saw the rising of the Antichrist, that one world ruler that will win the hearts of all the people that live on the earth and promise peace and yet somehow not be able to deliver but yet still deceive. We read about all of the calamities that are associated with the seal judgments, you know, peace being removed from the earth, the famine that will come for 42 months that won't rain upon the earth. We read of the angels that will hold back the four winds, so stopping the currents of the air and the cycles of this world. We read about the going forth of the 144,000. We saw all of the judgments that came with the sounding of the trumpets. One third of the trees and the grass burnt up by the hail and the fire. A third of the sea becoming blood and one third of all the marine life perishing as a result of that. One-third of all the drinking water made bitter. A third of the sun, the moon, and the stars dimming, not giving their light. We read about the locusts that for a period of five months will torment those that are alive upon the earth. People will seek death but not be able to die. We read of the 200 million demonic entities that will be released from the river Euphrates that will kill another one-third of the population with fire, smoke, and brimstone. The slaying of the two witnesses, most likely Moses and Elijah, that will stand there in Jerusalem giving testimony to the living God and to the things that are taking place coming from his hand. We read of the final banishing of Satan out of heaven that resulted in the full culmination of Antichrist's kingdom upon the earth. The establishment of a global government that will be in full power at that time. A global economy, the mark of the beast taken by many that remain, and the martyrdom of any that still remain that stand for the Lord at that time. So there's many things that we read about that will take place during the first half of the tribulation, all the way from chapter 6 to the point where we are now. But as we pick up tonight in chapter 16, we see the events that will take place during the second half of the tribulation. And you'll notice that we find a lot less. There isn't a whole lot that's given to us. Basically, in chapter 16, we'll see the seven bowls or the seven vile judgments that complete this period of time that's called the tribulation. In chapters 17 and 18, we'll see the fall and the destruction of Babylon, which is the you know, the, the, the fullness of Antichrist's kingdom. We'll see that recorded in those two chapters. And then in chapter 19, the second coming of Christ, which marks the end of the tribulation. So really, there isn't a whole lot left in terms of, you know, events that, that are, are recorded in the time of the tribulation. But though the events or the number of events that are recorded for the second half of the tribulation seem to be few... They far outweigh all of that which we read in the first half in intensity. The things that happen during the last part of the tribulation seem to be few, but they are by far the most intense. You recall the warning that the third angel gave back in chapter 14, verse 10. He said, the same shall drink, or all that take the mark of the beast, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out, he says, without mixture. Now, remember, everything that happened during the first part of the tribulation was partial and measured. One third of the earth was burnt up. 
One third of the seas became blood. One third of the population was destroyed. For five months, those locusts tormented men. And everything was measured, and it was almost given in fashion, whereas it was a warning to people to say, listen, there's still time, there's still a chance, there's still hope for those that will repent and turn to God. But what happens now as we come into chapter 16 and we see the last bowls of God's judgment poured out, there is no mixture. There is no limitation. There's no mercy mixed in with what God will do now as these vials are poured out. The judgment that comes with these things is final and it is total. It is absolute. And so we read, as we look at these seals, in chapter 16, verse 1, John writes, he says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple, saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Now, in our study last week, we saw these angels there in the temple. They had been prepared for this very purpose to be the administers of God's final stroke of wrath upon the planet. They were there in the temple. The temple had been closed. No man was allowed to enter in until these judgments were poured out. And and almost in great procession, these things are prepared as a whole chapter. Chapter 15 is dedicated just to the preparation of this moment that is breaking out here in verse 1. And at the end of that chapter, there those angels come out of the temple. And one of the beasts that stand before the throne of God hand to each of the angels their vial, their duty to pour out upon the planet. And here now in verse 1, the great voice out of the temple says to the seven angels now, go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. Someone has said one time that the judgment or the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but that they grind thoroughly. And many of us understand that because we see the things that are going on in the world. Back in chapter 6, we heard even the souls of those that had been martyred for the name of Jesus, under the altar, crying out and saying, How long, O Lord, will you allow these things to continue? Will you not avenge our blood upon those that dwell upon the earth? And God said, Wait another space of time until the rest of those that will be martyred join the number. And God, in his great patience, not longing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The wheels of his judgment indeed turn slowly, but they do grind thoroughly. Because the time will come when God will make full restitution for the sins and iniquities of men. And here in verse 1, we hear the command coming forth from the temple of God unto the seven angels, go your ways and pour out the final vials of God's wrath upon the earth. Now, when I hear the word vial it immediately brings me back in my mind to my high school days in biology class or chemistry when there would be beakers and vials of very, you know, ominous substances that for some reason just seemed for the very fact that they were in those containers that you should not touch them, that they're dangerous, that there's something about them to to just keep away, leave it in the test tube, don't mess with this kind of a thing. Now, really, more accurately, this is a bowl. And and if you have a a newer translation or if you look it up, really, it's more accurately a bowl. But I like vial better because it really illustrates what is contained within these bowls or in these vials. These are not things that you want to mess with. You don't want to smell them or get near them or taste of them in any way. You just want to stay away from these things, as we will see, as they are poured out. It tells us there in verse 2 that the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth. And the result, there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them that worshipped his image. A noisome and grievous sore falls upon all those that took the mark of the beast. 
that pledged their allegiance to the Antichrist and denied the lordship of Jesus Christ. A better way to translate this noisome and grievous sore, I mean, that sounds very King Jamesian, you know, and everything, but really a better way to describe this in language that we would more fully understand is a loathsome and penetratingly painful boil. Now, this isn't just one boil, but it says that these sores, plural, broke out upon the bodies of all of them that took the mark of the beast. Most likely, these boils that John sees that he's describing are unlike anything that has ever been experienced in the medical, uh, you know, chronicles of human history prior to this time. Now, throughout human history, there have been medical conditions that produce sores or boils, if you would, grievous and painful and loathsome sores upon human flesh. In, in ancient Egypt, they had what they called the botch. And I don't know what that is, but it doesn't sound real pleasant. You know, the botch of Egypt they had, and you didn't want that. You know, you wanted to stay away from the botch. We read throughout the Bible of people that had leprosy, which again was a noisome and grievous sore that would, you know, literally eat the flesh of those that were infected with its bacterias. We know of smallpox and the damage that it has done throughout human history. The bubonic plague, typhus, the measles, yellow fever, all things that throughout history have caused a very similar reaction. However, in each case... Through time and medical advancement, there was some kind of a treatment. Whether it was a cure altogether or something that would just relieve the pain or deal with the symptoms, this loathsome and penetratingly painful boil that will cover the bodies of those that take the mark of the beast during the tribulation will have no solution. This will be something, by the time we get to verse 12 and we see the fifth vial that's poured out, we see that these people are still infected with these things. That this is something that they will deal with throughout the rest of their earthly lives until the time that they are eliminated by whatever plague of these takes them out. It's noteworthy that, the, that only this boil only affects those that took the mark of the beast. There will be at this time an unknown number of Jews that are still hiding in an undisclosed, but most likely it's Petra, you know, place, uh, awaiting the second coming of Christ. They didn't take the mark and they will not be affected by this. There will no doubt be others, those that are not Jews, that aren't linked at all to the preservation of the Jews, that refuse to take the mark, whether it be because they've come to faith in Christ, some perhaps because they just don't give in to those type of things, you know, the rebel that won't take the mark, that is hiding out somehow successfully. I'm not saying there will be many of those, but certainly there will be some. But that this plague only affects those that take the mark of the beast. And it could have to do with some reaction to the mark itself, that when the angel pours out this whatever it is, and as its physical manifestation presents itself in the atmosphere... That somehow it reacts with the mark, whatever it might be, or perhaps the method by which the mark was administered. It reacts in some way, and it's only these people that are affected by this boil. The religion of Antichrist's dominion is going to be self-worship. The Satanic Bible, and I've never held a copy or read it, but I've you know, been informed and seen and read up on various aspects of it. But the opening words of the Satanic Bible are, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The main premise or principle behind Satanic inspiration is do what you want. It's self-worship. Follow after the desires in the inclination of your own heart and live your life the way you want. That is the inspiration behind Satan's doctrine and it will be the center, the core principle of the religious system during the tribulation time. Now we understand humanism and we understand the human nature, the human propensity that is inclined towards self-worship. I mean, we love ourselves, right? 
When, when you flip through a stack of photos, and nobody flips through a stack of photos anymore, but when you scroll through a stack of photos on Facebook, who are you looking for? You, right? And, you know, church baptism and picnic photos up. You're like, click, 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 stop. They caught me in a bad moment. I was blinking. You know, click, click, click. Because we're just inclined that way. You know, before we have an important event, you know, you remember when you went to your junior prom or your senior prom or when you got married, you know, you just want to look absolutely perfect. And, and, and some of us know the feeling of having a moment like that when you just want to look your absolute best and you wake up that morning and you look in the mirror and what do you see? Yes, inevitably, there is some blemish. There is something there that wasn't there yesterday that completely derails your plans of attractiveness. You know, I remember, I remember uh, Georgia when um, we were just starting to date, you know, and we, we hadn't really gotten serious yet. And she was a year older than me. So she had her, I can't remember if it was her junior prom or her senior prom, you know, but I was a year younger. And, and I ended up there with someone else. And she ended up there with someone else. And she was voted prom queen. And she had the absolute worst hairdo anybody has ever seen. I mean, I remember I walked by her as we were, you know, interacting, and I said, nice beehive. I mean, and, that, and she said it destroyed her night because we were kind of in that phase of, like, you know, interest and all. And, and, and you know, and, and it's just inevitable that on a moment or an occasion like that, there's some blemish. Well, here at the apex of Antichrist's rule, and in the thriving moments of human worship and self-love, where people worship themselves and seem to be doing so well physically and in every way prospering, they will all of a sudden wake up one morning and God will purposely, pointedly, severely damage the object of their greatest affection. The temple, the idol of self will be defiled. These boils will arise. These loathsome and penetratingly painful sores will become incurably present. And God will frustrate this thing of self-worship. You know, it's, I, I don't even know if this relates anymore, but it was super funny. You know, we were in the hospital when Georgia gave birth. And, you know, when you're in that part of the hospital, that part of the hospital deals with that part of the body. And so we're in there, and inside each of the offices, there are these racks of brochures for various things. You know, different types of birth control and different types of, uh, you know, diseases, whether they be sexually transmitted or just things that happen as a course of life and all this stuff. And it's very awkward for me because I'm in there and I'm like, you know, you know I, I'm not trying to look at the anatomy charts around the wall and all these things. And, you know, George is in there and then the doctor's in there, the female doctor. And so I'm just kind of like this, this bicep. But one of the pamphlets that was there really caught my eye because there were these two people on the cover of it and they just looked like the happiest people that you've ever seen in your entire life. I mean, they were the picture of happiness. You just said, wow, what is it about those people? And so, you know, inevitably you glance at the title of the pamphlet and the title is Living Life with Herpes. And I'm going, is it really that nice to have herpes? It's almost like they're advertising herpes. You know, you know, I want herpes. How do I get it? You know, kind of a thing. It's funny because it doesn't make any sense. But that's what, kind of what it's going to be like during this time here when these boils begin to break up. Because the facade has to continue. The appearance as though everything's okay and I'm still in control and I'm still the captain of my own ship. All of that has to continue even though the tragedy of what's taking place in reality is inescapable. And so these people covered with these sores, perhaps beginning to sense that they're in a whole lot of trouble, but yet needing to maintain and hold on. There's many people like that in the world today. They're the captain of their own ship. They're directing their own destiny. They're going to make their life happen the way they want. But then all of a sudden, something begins to happen. 
something very grievous, very loathsome, perhaps not a sore that takes place physically, but an emptiness that manifests internally. But I can't let anybody know about it. I've got to continue to put on this facade as though everything's okay because it's all going to work out in the end. I might be in a little bit of trouble, but it's got to work out in the end. How horrifying it would be to be in the position of these here in chapter 16 when there is no more recourse. There is no more chance to turn to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who can set free and deliver eternally, abundantly. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea and it became as the blood of a dead man and every living soul in the sea died. Now back in the seal judgments in chapter 6, one third of the sea was turned to blood and one third of the marine life died. But here it's 100%. The entire sea, everything that when you look at a globe is blue, that is ocean, is now red. It's turned into the blood of a dead man in appearance, in texture, and certainly in aroma. And that's why it specifies the blood of a dead man. Because if it's just the blood of whatever, then it's just a red thing that scares people. But no, this is the blood of a dead man, which means that it carries appearance, texture, and smell of a very specific substance. Now, when Georgia and I got, you know, first moved into this area, the first apartment that we lived in, it was a small little one-bedroom apartment. And when Rocky was born, he slept in the hallway because there was really no place to put him. And it was a really great spot. I actually liked living there. But there was one problem with that little apartment, is that during certain seasons of the year, mice somehow would die in the walls. And and so, you know, you would kind of like hear them scratching, you know, here and there. And then all of a sudden you wouldn't hear them scratching anymore. And a few days later, there would start to be this aroma that would fill that tiny little apartment. And it took a while to discover what it was. We were just like, man, that stinks. What is it? And you're opening windows and blowing fans and all these things. Well, upon one not so pleasant occasion, I discovered what the source of that stench was. It, It isn't just the, you know mouse in and of itself that dies it's the because the mouse can die and it can be there for a couple days and you don't smell anything but what happens eventually is that in the decomposing process eventually the skin of that thing you know weakens to a point where what's on the inside breaks through and comes out and that stench that's associated with that dead mouse in the wall is nothing other than the blood of that decomposing animal escaping from that you know, sack that contained it previously. And that is not a pleasant smell. Now, I've never smelled the blood of a dead man, but I can imagine that the stench is horrific, wretched. Yeah, you know. It says here that it says the blood of a dead man. It's not one third, it's the whole of the thing. And what this, you know, if you put yourself there, You can avoid the appearance of the water. You just don't go near the ocean. You don't have to buy, you know, the sea star chicken of the sea tuna cans, you know, and and eat what was in the sea. You don't have to do that. But the stench that will cover the globe that's associated with this plague, this whole entire ocean being turned into blood, it will be inescapable. There is no HEPA filter that's strong enough to hide the stench of the entire global body of waters being turned into the blood of a dead man. The entire world will begin to stink. In Isaiah chapter 65, God speaks about people that are self-righteous. Those that put on kind of an aura as though they are holier than thou. That they are right with God and that you will someday measure up to the place that I have attained to. And God talks about how that attitude, that condition of the heart is a stench in his nostrils. And it's interesting to me that in this point in the tribulation when the whole world stands up in rebellion against God and says we are able to attain Godhood on our own. God fills their noses with the same stench that fills his nose as he is put in contact with that attitude of self-righteousness. The whole sea turned into blood. 
In verse 4, the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and the fountains of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters say, Thou art righteous, O Lord, which art and wast and shall be, because thou hast judged thus. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink, for they are worthy. Now, as a result of the famine and the drought that has already taken place, I mean, you remember it hasn't rained for a a space of 42 months, that there's a drought on, on the earth. A bunch of the drinking water has already been affected, is unpotable. It's been made bitter through the wormwood that was there. Drinking water at this time will certainly be scarce. It won't be the kind of thing where you can just go pick up a bottle of Poland Springs down at the corner deli. Drinking water will be hard to come by. And whatever sources remain at this time will now be polluted, corrupted completely. All of the waters turned into blood so that people, if they desire to drink, which they will have to, they will be required to drink or ingest this blood that now fills the streams and natural waterbeds of the world. When Cain killed Abel way back in the book of Genesis, the early chapters of God's Chronicles of Man, when God approached Cain to reprove him, to converse with him about what he had done, he uses this phrase, he says, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Leviticus chapter 17, God declares and he says, the life of a man is in his blood. And therefore God's law in establishing human government is that if man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. The blood being the pivotal factor, the container of life. And here this angel says pointedly that the reason for this plague, the turning of the drinking fresh water supplies into blood, is the result of man's martyrdom of God's people, the shedding of innocent blood. And the recompense for it is that God will cause them to drink blood. In Luke chapter 11, verses 47 through 51, Jesus picks up on this theme as he argues with the Pharisees. He says, Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly, you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their sepulchres or their tombstones. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel, Unto the blood of Zechariah, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily, I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. During the tribulation, God will repay those that slew his people throughout all generations. He will judge the sin of all martyrdom, those that slew God's people. Jesus said that during the tribulation... People will think that when they are killing you, they are doing God's service. But God will keep a record of every drop of blood that is spilled. The voice of the blood crying from the ground where it is. And God will avenge it upon those that dwell upon the earth, causing them to drink blood to it. And the angel here declares that this action is the response of God to the martyrdom of his people. Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. In verse 7, it says, And I heard another out of the altar say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, True and righteous are thy judgments. Now notice where this voice comes from. It says, he heard another voice out of the altar. When's the last time we heard a voice come out from the altar in the book of Revelation? 
It was chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, when the souls of them that had been martyred or slain for the word of God were crying out and saying, How long, Lord, holy and true, dost thou not avenge our blood upon those that dwell upon the earth? And again, the response of God was, Wait. Wait just a, a little season longer until the number is complete, and then it will happen. And here, as this third bowl, this third vial is poured out upon the planet, And men are caused to drink blood because of the blood that they shed. A voice now cries from the altar. The feeling of vindication, the satisfaction that God has righteously judged for the sin that had been committed. And the response is, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now notice that again, that that keeps recurring, that same theme of the true and righteous judgments of God. That it isn't unfair, that it isn't more severe than what the transgression requires, you know, that God repays perfectly according to the transgression that is committed. He says, they shed the blood of those prophets and saints, and so they will be given blood to drink. And those that were slain respond and say, true and righteous are your judgments, O Lord. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, And power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat. And blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. The sun throughout the scripture is always to us a poetic and a visible illustration of the sun, the S-O-N. The S-U-N, the source of light and energy for our planet physically, is always a poetic picture of the S-O-N, the Son of God who gives energy and life spiritually. In John chapter 8, verse 12, it says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus testifying, declaring, and saying, I am the light of life. I am the one that gives source to life upon planet Earth. Even as the S-U-N does it physically, the S-O-N does it spiritually and eternally, and Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. David in the Psalms makes a great poetic illustration of this in Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They have a message. And the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. He says, when you look up at the heavens, there is a message that's being preached that supersedes the boundaries of language. Their line, he says, has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, the S-U-N, which as a bridegroom, and that should raise an antenna, who is the bridegroom, coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. A poetic and very pointed illustration, not of the S-U-N, that's not what David's message was. That's not the message that the heavens are declaring. But rather the power and the life-giving aspects of the S-O-N, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now the Son... The S-U-N is a source of light and life to our planet, serving the Earth's physical and biological systems. But the S-U-N, the sun, just like the sun, the S-O-N, can be an enemy as well as a servant. Though it has power on both sides to give life and energy, it also has power to scorch and to destroy. It has power to provide life, but it also has power to take life. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 30, verse 26, talks about a time that will come, most likely speaking of this very time in the tribulation. And he says, moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun shall be, listen, 
sevenfold. That means seven times in its strength. As the light of seven days in the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. Now that's exactly what took place in the last verse. He healed the stroke of their wound. That was the drinking of the blood. And now here, the intensity of the sun is increased according to Isaiah's prophecy, most likely sevenfold. And it says here that it isn't just in brightness, according to what Isaiah said, but it's also in heat. We get that from John because it says that it had power to scorch men with fire. Now imagine, and I'm glad that today was like it was, because imagine with me the hottest day. Now it was hot today. I don't know what the actual, you know, thermometer peaked out at or whatever, you know, but today was one of those just hot, humid days. And usually for me, that's like my glory. I love the heat. I'll never complain about it's too hot. It's too humid. I don't feel good. I don't feel like I love the heat. I was made to be Jamaican. I don't know why I'm not because I would thrive in that climate. I just love it, you know. But once it gets to be about 100 degrees, even then, I'll admit, then I start to say it's hot. You know, I like it, but it's getting hot. Now imagine the hottest day, the hottest day of the summer. You know, it's over 100, it's humid, the sun is high in the sky, there's no cloud cover, there's no breeze, and it's just beating on you, and you can feel it. It's like the penetrating rays are just piercing through your skin. Now double it. Double the intensity of the sun upon you at that time. Then, double it again. You've just gone from one unit of intensity, however you measure that, to eight. One became two, two became four, four becomes eight, and then you just take away one, and then you have seven. (laughs) Seven times the brightness and intensity of the sun, so bright that Isaiah tells us that nighttime will be as day because the light of the moon will be the light of the sun. And the light of the day will be seven times. And the power of the sun Remember when you were a kid and you had the magnifying glass and you found an anthill? Did anybody ever do that? We never did it with ants, but we would do it with other things like paper, you know, garbage. We'd find anything and just watch what you can do with a magnifying glass in the sunlight. We'd light things on fire. Now imagine all of a sudden God holds up a giant magnifying glass and he goes, oh yeah? And he puts it between the sun and the earth and seven times the power of the sun is magnified. Those that are standing in direct sunlight... Well, at that time, it says they are scorched with fire. That they will be lit on fire in that time. Consider that there is already a scarce supply of fresh water. Intensify the heat of the sun seven times and the rate of evaporation multiplies that much more. Whatever is left dries up rapidly, completely. The scathing sores that came upon them back in the pouring out of the first vial, are now scorched with the intensity of that heat. It tells us so much more, uh, you, you know, in, in, in this type of thing uh, that happens. Consider what would happen to the ice caps. You talk about global warming. They want to use global warming as a deception to maybe increase taxes or strip us of freedoms now. Well, guess what will happen during the tribulation? They'll get their global warming. Seven times hotter, the ice caps will melt. All of the water that flooded the earth during the flood in Noah's day that has been subdued in those ice caps in the north and the south poles will now begin to melt. But it will melt in the form of blood. And the rising sea levels as a result will begin to encroach upon and consume the cities of low-lying elevation. New York will begin to slowly be overrun with this stenchy blood Los Angeles, also at low sea level. Tokyo, Shanghai, Singapore, Amsterdam, Rio de Janeiro, Athens, Greece. All begin as the ice caps melt, this blood will begin to rise under the intense heat of the sun, slowly inundated with thick, hot, stinky blood. Meanwhile... In Babylon, 
where Antichrist's paradise is thriving, it tells us in verse 10, while the rest of the world is sitting in seven times intensity of light, verse 10 tells us that the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and of their sores. And it says that they repented not of their deeds. Now, in the book of Exodus, when Moses went into Pharaoh and demanded the deliverance and the release of his people so that they might serve God in the wilderness. And in that record of the plagues that fell upon Egypt as a result of Moses' ministry, it tells us in Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, it says that the Lord said to Moses, stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. Now consider that for a minute. Darkness which can be felt. And it says that Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwelling. Now, though it will be on a much larger scale and to a much greater degree, it will be the same type of darkness that is experienced here when this fifth angel pours out his vial upon the earth. It won't just be a darkness wherein they can't see each other, but it will be a darkness that is so dark that it permeates just the physical aspect of darkness and to a point where the darkness grips the soul and it can be felt to the point where it says that they gnaw on their tongues for pain. That's dark. I don't know about you. Have you ever experienced a darkness that can be felt you know i'm not trying to equate anything that we experience with what this is talking about here but i believe that it is appointed to the christian at some point in their walk to experience at least to a degree this type of darkness that that john is describing here darkness that can be felt One of the early church fathers, St. John of the Cross, he wrote a book trying to describe this darkness called The Dark Night of the Soul. And in in this book, he tries to describe the condition that, that God sometimes appoints for his people, but he describes it according to the purpose of God in allowing his people to experiencing it. Job experienced the darkness that could be felt. When you read the things that happened to him and you listen to the words that came out as a result of it, there was a great darkness that gripped him. The Apostle Paul experienced this darkness. He spoke of it in First or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he said that we were distressed. He said it was such a pressure that was upon us. We were being squeezed so greatly. He said that we despaired even of life. There was something that was so heavy upon him that he no longer even wanted to live. But see, God's purpose in allowing his people to taste it is much different than what will happen here during the tribulation. Because God's purpose in allowing his people to experience this darkness and the condition of it is to bring us to a place of faith and a place of hope. Paul said that this darkness, this distress that captured me, that squeezed me, it produced in me a hope and a belief and a knowledge that he is, in fact, the God who does deliver, will deliver, and in the future will yet deliver. And so God will allow us sometimes to experience this to taste it, to to feel it, the squeeze of depression or the pressures of this life to such a point where it feels like, what's the point? Why even go on? But for us, we have the hope that on the other side of it, we're going to know to fuller measure the God who delivers. The God who is above our circumstances and our trials. So that on the other side, we can say, he is the deliverer. He will yet deliver us in the midst of our tribulation. That we might learn, Paul said, not to trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead. In the life of the Christian, this experience produces faith and hope. But in these, during the tribulation, this experience produces what we read in verse 11. It says that they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they repented not 
of their deeds. Now, this is the second time in this chapter that it tells us that these people blasphemed the God of heaven and that they repented not. There are some people that teach that hell is not a place of eternal torment, but rather a place of temporary punishment and reform. That hell is not created as a place where people will suffer eternally, but it is rather just punitive. It's purgatory. It's a place where people will, you know, suffer and feel the weight of their sin, but that will have a purifying effect on them and that it will bring them to a place of repentance where ultimately they are allowed into heaven. Well, this verse and this chapter shatters the concept of that. Because what these people are experiencing is hell on earth and in no way does this produce in them any form of purifying or repentance but rather it causes them to further dig in their heels in rebellion and hatred towards God and to cry out blasphemies against his name because of it. Judgment and punishment from God never produces reform and repentance. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 4, and he said, don't you realize that it's the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance? It isn't judgment and wrath that brings us to a place of submission and love. But rather, it's when we see the mercy and the grace of God Almighty, it brings us to our knees and to a place of repentance. Notice also with me that the sores that were described in verse 2 at the pouring out of the first vial are still being felt here in verse 12. Let it be an indication to you and to any that would seek to say that these judgments are not something that will happen successively, but rather over large periods of time. Sometimes you'll hear these self-proclaimed prophets talk about the events of Revelation as though, well, we experienced the fourth bowl in 400 AD when such and such. No, 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 no. When this happened, it will be very clear what's happening and it will be very successive and very quick and very pointed. And compounded. In verse 12 it says that the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Now if you can picture a map of modern day Iraq. And you see those two rivers that we all learned about in school. You know the Tigris and the Euphrates. That you know kind of streams in the desert if you would. In that barren part of the Middle East. And those two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, really in the cradle of all civilization. The floodplains of the Euphrates were the site of the first human city. It became the site of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon in the days of Daniel, that kingdom that was the head of gold, that large tree that overshadowed the whole world. On its shores will also be erected the new Babylon that will be the epicenter of Antichrist's kingdom. Zechariah chapter 5 says that the stork will pick up the world power and it will set it there on its base in the land of Shinar in this very place. And no doubt the Euphrates River will be the source of life and the source of nourishment and the source of fertility within that new city within Antichrist's empire. Five times in the Bible it is called the Great Euphrates River. And even today it's one of the great rivers in the world. But many of the needs during the tribulation will be met by this river. The drinking water that still remains, food control, hydropower, cooling water for power generating plants, industrial processes. All of these things will be dependent upon this river. But now, after three and a half years of drought, rapid evaporation, and now the final pouring out of this sixth vial there will be an intense blow to Antichrist's kingdom as this Euphrates River is dried up completely. It's interesting that both the Tigris and the Euphrates have their source there in the mountains of Armenia, if you would, the mountains of Ararat. Is there any other thing that peaks up in your mind when I speak about Mount Ararat? It's the place where Noah's Ark landed after the great flood subsided. And I suggest to you that for Noah's ark to have found its place there, and Noah then had to wait a series of days before he was able to exit from the ark, most likely it's in the very high peaks of this mountain range. And it's these ice caps that melt in the spring that give source to the waters of the Tigris and the Euphrates. 
Perhaps it is that as this vial is poured out, compounded with that which we read about the sun intensified back in those previous verses, those ice caps now cease to exist completely. And I just wonder if there on the tops of those mountains will be a testimony of God's faithfulness standing there in the mountains. An ark that housed three men and their wives 4,000 years ago. A testimony of God's righteous judgment upon a rebellious world. I wonder. I wonder if perhaps when those ice caps melt, if maybe that ark will come floating down the Euphrates River. Wouldn't that be something? God told Noah to cover it with tar, pitch. He wanted it preserved for something. Wouldn't that be cool? What's that, Dad? (laughs) Nothing, son. But it says that it will be dried up to make way for the kings of the east. Now, now watch this, because in our world, this doesn't seem necessary. Why do you have to dry up a river for people to get across? I mean, we have airplanes, we have helicopters, we have choppers, we have boats, we have personal watercrafts. We have everything that you could possibly need to move an army from one side of a river to another side of the river without moving the water out of the way. So most likely, and I'm not taking anything away from, maybe it will be necessary. It doesn't seem so, but perhaps it's just symbolic. The Euphrates River throughout all of history has always been seen as the barrier between the east and the west. It was the boundary of Babylon and Assyria separating east and west. It was the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire in John the Apostle's day, the separation between east and west. And it's the eastern boundary of the land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Again, the separation between east and west. And here it is completely dried up. And other than as a symbol, the Euphrates doesn't require emptying. But at this point, all things are heading toward this culminating battle, the battle of Armageddon, that will be the event that ends this tribulation time. And so it will be dried up as this angel pours out his vial upon the earth. In verse 13, John writes and he says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Here you see the unholy trinity, the dragon, the antichrist, and the false prophet, the unholy trinity. And it says that a frog came out of each of them, a spirit. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So at this point, now, when this vial is poured out and the Euphrates is completely dried up, now these spirits of these demonic entities begin to go forth throughout the whole planet. And these frog-like entities begin to put it in the minds and in the hearts of the kings of the earth and the citizens that follow, go to the Valley of Megiddo. John Corson says, go to Megiddo, go to Megiddo, you know, the frogs, go to Megiddo, you know, go to Megiddo. And slowly these these beings, these demons, as they influence the men that remain upon the earth, it will be enough is enough. We will throw off the yoke and the rule of God once and for all. And they will be deceived. It tells us that they work miracles and they bring deception into thinking that they can win in the battle of the great day against God Almighty. And the whole world will begin to congregate to this valley, this plain in Megiddo, that land that's flat, that's north of Jerusalem, there in the lands of Israel, the battle of Armageddon. And the seventh angel now, verse 17, poured out his vial into the air. And there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. Aren't you glad? I mean, this has been kind of heavy, right? You know, finally, and we went through the seals, we went through the trumpets, we go through the vials. The seventh bowl is poured out, and the voice comes out, it is done. And there were voices 
and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And now for the third time, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. The final vial, the final bowl that is poured out. The culmination and completion of the wrath of God results in these hailstones that were about a talent of weight. It would be of about a hundred pounds of weight per hailstone that falls. Now, I don't know, as I said at the beginning of this time that we began, what's in these vials, these beakers that are poured out. But I do know, I think, I have a theory about what is in the seventh. I think I know what's in the seventh vial. Freon. You know, the thing that supplies your air conditioner? Here's why. Because the sun has been intensified to a place where now during the day the heat on the planet is so hot. The ice caps are melted. The rivers are dried up. You know, there is an an exceeding abundance of moisture that's saturated in the atmosphere. I mean, think about how much water can be contained in the atmosphere when it's that hot. And now all of a sudden, this angel just releases Freon. (sighs) Drops the temperature of the upper atmosphere exceedingly. What's the result of that going to be? A very fast and harsh releasing of moisture from the atmosphere. Eh, Pretty good theory, right? You know, I don't know that for sure. I'm speculating. But we do know that the result will be these hailstones that weigh about 100 pounds. Now, I I didn't do this math myself because I'm not that smart, but I looked it up. And to have a hailstone of solid ice that weighs 100 pounds, it would be anywhere between 18 and 22 inches in diameter. Now, we've all seen hail. You know, the, the most I've ever seen is maybe the size of a marble. But I've heard stories about hail the size of golf balls. And I've seen pictures of what hail like that can do to a car, you know, or to a piece of property. Very damaging. But now just multiply that, not to the size of a grapefruit, not the size of a basketball, but, you know, about two feet, 18 to 22 inches, somewhere in that realm. And just think about what happens if all of a sudden you're looking up and all of a sudden one of those things lands next to you or lands on the car, you know, in the parking lot right there. And it isn't just one or two, but this is a hailstorm. And so these things just become coming down. I mean, where do you seek shelter from something like that? I mean, you're in your house. What happens to your house? Your house isn't going to save you. You know, you have a concrete floor. You know, those things begin to hit a concrete. Maybe it can take one or two, but how long can that structure, whatever it is, withstand those things? And it says that the intensity of those hailstones is so great that these people, again, cry out in blasphemy against God because the plague of it was very great in this thing. It's incredible to think about. Now, three times in this chapter, it says that the people blasphemed the God of heaven because of these great plagues. It's interesting to me in the law, Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, it says, And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. As well the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. That according to the law, the penalty for blasphemy was stoning. But here it isn't the congregation of the people of Israel. It's God Almighty himself who's throwing the stone. Do you recall the ninth chapter of John? A woman who is brought caught in the very act of adultery and laid at the feet of Jesus. The accusation came, the cry, the penalty was declared before all those present. The law says that she shall be stoned. What do you say? And it says that Jesus stooped down and he began to write in the sand and he said, he that is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. 
And it says from the oldest to the youngest, one by one, they began to depart because they all were convicted of their guilt. And as Jesus reached out his hand and he lifted up this young woman and forgave her her sin, he said, where are those thine accusers? There's none, Lord. Well, neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. There was one man among that multitude that was worthy to pick up the first stone and to stone her. It was the one who lifted her up. The one who extended forgiveness and grace. But the day will come when the worthy, holy, and righteous God will pick up stones. And he will cast them into the earth and every blasphemy will be punished. Every rejection of the offer of salvation will be judged. And God Almighty will complete his wrath. As we close, I will draw your attention back to verse 17. As the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. The same Lord that we read of here casting these hailstones out of heaven is the same Lord who lifted up that young woman and said, Where are those thine accusers? And set her on her way in new life. He is also the same Lord that left the supper that night, went into a garden and began to be in great agony. As he began to take upon himself the full weight and penalty of the wrath of God. Everything that has taken place from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls, in some way he experienced to its full measure without mixture. Not one-third, not one-fourth, not for a measured period of time, but he experienced the full blow and penalty of the wrath of God. And as he hung upon that cross, not for any sin that he had committed, the one who was worthy, the one who was holy, he uttered the words and he said, it is done. It is finished. To tell us that it is paid in full. The good news is, it was Jesus Christ who took the penalty for your sin and mine. It was you and me that are worthy to be scorched by the heat of the sun. It's you and I in our self-righteous, smug arrogance that deserve to be covered with boils, painful and exceedingly dreadful from head to toe. It's you and I that deserve to be pummeled to the ground by the weight of a hundred-pound hailstone because of our rebellion and our sin. But there is a God in heaven who loved us so much that he, having no sin of his own, was willing to endure the full weight of the wrath of God. And the declaration of victory as he cried from the cross, it is finished, was not for him. It was for you and me. And in these final seconds of human history, as we stand upon a planet that is about to be plunged into the throes and throngs of God's wrath, for any and all that will still receive, that will say, yes, Lord, I believe. I receive. To you, he will extend the same forgiveness that he extended to that young woman that day who no doubt was guilty. As the worship team comes, this chapter can either fill you with fear, discouragement, contempt, and heaviness. Or it can fill you with thanksgiving. It can fill you with wonder. It can fill you with awe. As you realize and recognize what Jesus absorbed on your behalf. What you will be spared because of what he endured. I pray, if you know Jesus, that these things inspire you to want to know him more. That if there's any area in your life that is unyielded to him, 
there's anything that causes you to look up and say, God, and hold him in contempt in any way that you would read these verses and understand these things and that he would be found in your heart worthy to be the Lord of all. And if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, I pray for you. I pray that you would no longer ride the fence, that you'd no longer cover up the sores that your sin has caused, hoping that maybe somehow it'll work out in the end. Listen, you've just read how it's going to end. If you have yet to know him personally, I pray that you wake up. Realize the severity and the goodness of God and the opportunity that you still have to come to him in these last days. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just... Thank you so much, Lord, for for telling us these things. Truly, Lord, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, in this there is such a mystery, such an inspiration, such, such wonder, Lord. Not when we look at what's coming, but when we look at who came. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being willing, Lord. Thank you for being obedient to the will of your Father. Thank you for taking the cup of the fierceness of his wrath away from us and drinking it yourself. Thank you for giving to us the cup of fellowship in your blood, the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. Lord, I pray right now for each person here, I pray that you would pour out your spirit in a fresh way. You said that the spirit would come and that he would testify of me. And I just pray for each person here tonight, Lord, that they would know you in a fresh way. That you would be revealed to them as the Savior, the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. That the love that held you upon the cross and that constrained you to give up the ghost would fill each person. I pray even now, Lord, that your love would so overflow each one here that every trial, every darkness, every bit of despair would immediately be dissolved the light of your life and the glory of your love would just overflow each person. I pray, Lord, that each of us would leave here different than when we came in. Please let your word penetrate. I pray you would work it deep within us and that your spirit would empower us, Lord, to live in the perspective of things to come. You said you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. You said, set your affections upon things above and not on things of the earth. Father, please, we just ask you to help us. Teach us to number our days. Give us wisdom. We thank you tonight, in Jesus' name, amen.